So, Brian, after Trump's devastating interview with Brett Barr and Fox News, is he totally screwed in his upcoming criminal trial? Hmm, it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Brian Greer. I'm a former CIA attorney who worked on espionage act prosecutions and others involving classified information. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. All right, so first of all, just as a starting point, if you have not been listening to prior episodes, Asha hasn't been replaced. She's not going anywhere. In fact, I hope we're going to be able to get her to have a cameo in this episode at some point. But she's on vacation in Rome. And so my friend Brian Greer offered to uh, jump in. It was very kind of him. And you may know Brian because he is Secrets in Laws on Twitter, always talking about national security cases. He also is Associate General Counsel of the CIA. Really knowledgeable. He was our guest uh, the other week. So thank you for joining us, Brian. Real appreciate it. Thanks for having me again. All right. And I'm traveling, too. So you get to see a very boring background behind me and maybe slightly lower sound quality. Um, but we had a lot to talk about today. This is a jam-packed episode because I think we had a lot of news just break in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Maybe let's just start with the trial date. So we're recording this on Tuesday. We just found out um, Eileen Cannon sent a trial date um, w- within a couple months, right? It's like in August of this year. In fact, yeah. I originally tweeted about what would ha- it being in August of next year because I just instinctively, I'm like, there's no way you could have a trial this year. What is your take on this trial date, Brian? It's funny. That was my initial reaction, too, was, wow, she said it for August 2024. That's aggressive. <laughs> um, yeah, but obviously, yeah, yeah. But obviously, <laughs> it, it looks like, obviously, she said it for 2023, we know, uh, in August. And that just appears to be, you can explain better than I, to comply with the Speedy Trial Act requirements. Maybe you can explain that. Sure. So you, you may or may not be aware uh, that in the United States Constitution, defendants are entitled to a speedy trial. There's actually a law that pa- that has been passed called the Speedy Trial Act that essentially gives meaning to or gives some meat on the bones to that right. And criminal defendants have the right to have a trial within 70 days. When I first started practicing criminal law, I didn't understand why people didn't just rush to have their speedy trial in 70 days. It does occasionally happen. It's happened in some famous cases, like Senator Ted Stevens did that uh, back when he was up for re-election many years ago. But usually um, that's something defendants don't want because the defense in a criminal case doesn't have the discovery at the beginning of the case. The government has had years to build up their evidence, their investigation. They're ready to go. The defense is just learning about the evidence for the first time when they receive it. So 70 days is usually not even enough time to review the evidence and get ready for trial, much less consider and file motions and have a judge, um, uh, you know, uh, contemplate those and rule on those. That time, by the way, is excluded for purposes of the Speedy Trial Act. So even if you wanted a speedy trial, if you file a motion, it stops the clock and then the judge can take, um, you know, her or his uh, sweet time uh, deciding it. But there's plenty of other ways of, 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 of delaying, and usually it's the case that the defense wants to delay for some period of time. In other words, even if I have a client who is eager to get the matter behind him, it's pretty rare that 
the you know that the case is going to go to trial in under a year in a complex or sophisticated case, not a straightforward like you got nabbed with uh, a pound of drugs at the border or something. Uh, but but se- separately from that too, even if a defendant really wants to go to trial, nowadays courts are pretty uh, you know backed up. They're usually booked. Their trial calendars are booked. And a judge can simply just say, I, you know, they can try to make room in their calendar for um, uh, a criminal case that is the the defendant wants a speedy trial, and they will make an effort to do that. But unless the person really wants to have their speedy trial within 70 days, which would be malpractice for most criminal defense attorneys, you know, the judges can only have limited flexibility. And often the judge will say, I'm not free for several months in a row. Yeah. So I think like with a lot of other things we've seen and we'll talk about, this is sort of a nothing to see here. I think type order, very standard and and none of this will hold. And I, you, you could maybe even critique that she doesn't, even the order barely mentions classified information in, in SEPA, the statute that would be used. But, you know, there'll be a whole separate SEPA schedule that where I think even just getting the discovery out all out and getting them all cleared and available to them in a skiff by August would be an accomplishment. Well, let's talk about that. So I, my experience is with a whole variety of criminal cases. So the, the analysis I just gave is essentially based on, hey, you got indicted and let's say it's $5 million fraud case in New York or Chicago. Okay. That's, that's what I would expect. I'd expect the case to not go to trial within a year. I'd expect it to go to trial maybe in a couple of years or something along, you know, 18 months, something along those lines. But actually, in, in national security cases, the defense, I think, has a lot of tools to delay beyond that. And maybe we could, you could just briefly uh, touch on, I think, interlocutory appeals, for example, would be one, one way that would, would happen. Yeah. So one thing under SEPA, um, Classified Information Procedures Act, that's the statute that will govern classified discovery and preparation for trial with classified information so anytime the government gets an adverse ruling that basically requires disclosure of classified information, not just publicly, but even just to the defense, like there may be information discovery where that they don't want to provide to defense. If the court rules against them on really anything that the government does under SEPA, they can take emergency interlocutory appeal. Even uh, it's required to be expedited uh, by the statute, but you can't really tell a court of appeals to expedite anything. <laughs> so yeah. they'll, they'll take however time they think is appropriate, how much time they think is appropriate, you know, and look back at the Canon litigation, um, from last fall. I think I went back and looked from the time DOJ filed notice of appeal to the time they got the final decision in the final case. Then you remember there was one in between, but that was still almost two months. Um, so, and that was expedited. So, you can see just one of those, and there may be multiple, could easily derail things. And then, yes, there's a number of other tools um, that defense lawyers can use, tactics. I call them shenanigans, right, that they may start raising with Canon to complain about every little thing. They'll complain about the air conditioning and the skiff that they get in Florida. They'll complain about their computer doesn't work. Like, they will come up with every tool to seek delay in these cases. Sure. I mean, there, there are tools even beyond that. I mean, you could just fire your lawyers uh, yeah. two weeks before trial, and then the judge is in a tough situation. Is she? What is she going to do, make him go forward without lawyers? Uh, there's lots of ways in which the defense can delay. And, and I guess I, it's funny because I, I, every time I tweet about the subject, I get angry commenters on Twitter telling me I'm completely wrong. I mean, I don't know. I don't think they have any basis for this. They've no experience. I feel like uh, Dr. Hotez, like, you know, some random bozo is telling me, like, uh, 
you know, that, hey, I, you're wrong about this. I, I'll say this. It is not inconceivable that you he could go to trial before the election. In other words, if his legal team really wanted that to happen, and the, I think that there's the, the, if everybody was on board and working together to make that happen, it could happen. But I think that's what it would take. Like if if he if he isn't on board with it and his team is not trying to get it done before the election, I just don't see how that's going to happen. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's three elements, right? There's how prepared is the government to meet all of its discovery obligations? We don't know, but I can just tell you from experience, these cases are hard. It's hard to gather all the documents. It's hard to get them redacted and cleared. Most of these documents probably have information from multiple agencies in them, like it appears, like they're all analytical products for the White House. So you've probably got four or five agencies in each individual document. There's probably thousands of documents that are going to go over in discovery. So how prepared is, is DOJ to meet that is one thing. The Trump lawyers and other, and then the biggest factor is just the judge, right? Like if the it's if the judge wants this to go to trial, let's say in August of 2024, like I think that's totally feasible. Like if the judge drives it, but she's got to drive it, and and we'll just see if that's the case. But um, I I can speak from experience. In one case, I had the, which was the prosecution of John Kiriakou. He was the former CIA officer. He had only three counts in his indictment, and he was charged in January. And this was in the Eastern District of Virginia, which is called the Rocket Docket. It's the fastest federal court in the country. They try to bring everything to trial in a year. And Judge Brinkema, who's particularly fast even in that court, she set a trial for 11 months after indictment. And it felt like the world was falling apart <laughs> from inside the mm -hmm. government to get ready for that 11-month trial. Thankfully, he pled about a month before trial. But even 11 months there in a much simpler case felt very, very difficult to achieve. Yeah, I think uh, I think realistically, my, my gut is that the defense's position is going to matter here. Obviously, you know, if if the defense really doesn't want that speedy trial, doesn't want to go to trial next year, hard for me to imagine the judge trying to force that uh, before an election in this particular case. So yep. we'll we'll see what happens there. But look, the the big um, monumental news, right, was the interview of Donald Trump by Brett Barr. On Fox News, I'm not Brett's biggest fan, uh, to put it mildly. I think at times he's biased, but I thought it was a good interview. Um, he didn't do quite as well as maybe uh, uh, I would have done as somebody's cross-examining. I kept noting different spots where he missed uh, opportunities to follow up. But he certainly um, got Trump to admit a lot of things. But there was a lot of, I think, overreaction to it on Twitter. Um I have my own views. I mean, would you, would you, what was your general take? Yeah, that was my reaction to certainly a no normal defendant would be speaking to the press like this after being indicted. So put that as I would be completely against uh, advice of counsel, but he, he definitely said things that are damaging for sure. But I don't think it's some people on Twitter were saying, Oh, he's basically confessed to all the elements of the crime. He didn't go that far. He, he basically said, I think clearly he was personally involved in looking through the boxes in response. And he said, uh, in response to the NARA request. So that's still helpful to the, the government, which confirms what they've already been able to prove separately that he does that he was involved. So that just shores that up. But he's not charged with anything in the response to NARA, right? Like it's the grand jury subpoena and everything that came after that is where all the obstructive conduct came. So that alone isn't like that damaging, I don't think. Then Bear asked him when he said that, well, what about the grand jury subpoena? And Trump just kind of repeated the same answer again about, oh, I needed to look through to make sure all my stuff, you know, my personal stuff wasn't in there. 
So that still shows he was involved, but he may claim, oh, I was still just talking about the NARA documents, or that doesn't mean I withheld documents. You know, he would need to say, I consciously withheld classified documents, uh, knowing that it was unlawful <laughs> for it to really be, meet the elements right. of the crime. And, and he didn't go that far, but it's still obviously very bad. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, first of all, you know, if my client was the one saying that on national television, I would be freaking out for sure. Um, it's problematic. The way it's problematic, and in, in, in this is, by the way, the, not the first time he's really talked about these subjects. I mean, he gave a big speech in Bedminster where he said some of the same things. But, you know, he's basically the, the main downside for the defense is that he locks them into a story. So the, the, but the, the reality of the situation is, Brian, you know, you talked about what the government had already proved. The government already is totally got Donald Trump dead to rights. I mean, he is screwed. There's very little wiggle room for him. And, you know, the reality is there's no I mean, there's no serious question that he knew there was a subpoena and that he didn't want to get the documents back. I mean, I don't really think his arguments could be, yeah, I was trying to get him back to the government. I just was not able to effectuate that or something. It's not going to be his argument. And, and so the only defense he has is this like dishonest BS uh, Presidential Records Act argument that, you know, and you can look, Google it on or search it on Twitter, or you'll find a bunch of dishonest lawyers trying to make this argument. But but it's 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 not a very good argument. The argument is essentially, and this is what it has to be because it's not right under the law. It has to be, I misunderstood the law and I thought I had unlimited time to just sift through boxes of documents to determine what was mine and not, or not, even though I was received, I had received a demand from the United States government to have this return. Based on that mistaken belief, I was doing what I thought was lawful. And so, and I thought they were acting unlawfully. And so therefore I didn't really have the right criminal intent because I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. That's the best, I would say best, I mean, best in air quotes. That's really all he's got as a defense. Now, the thing is, if he had kept his mouth shut on day one, like if the day after the raid, he didn't say anything like a normal person, then he would have other potential defenses. He's kind of locked himself into that story, but it was kind of before today, yesterday, but it wasn't like Brett Barr like locked him out of a bunch of defenses he already had. I felt like he had already made that story and his BS about going through the boxes, which makes no sense, like. He could, it wasn't, the subpoena wasn't for boxes. It was for stuff with documents or classified markings. So he could just return, go to the boxes, pull that stuff out and return it and fight about it later if he wanted to. But, but you know, I, I don't really see that interview as changing the equation too much. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Can you talk just a second about like how, how this would be introduced at trial? Um, sure. That's another issue. Yeah. I mean, so the so just so we under, so everyone understands the federal rules of evidence, if Trump wanted to introduce this interview or some piece of it, he would not be able to introduce it because it's hearsay. In other words, it's an out of court statement. It's not him testifying under alt where he gets cross examined by the other side. It's something he said elsewhere. So he couldn't introduce it. The government could because it's an admission of the opponent. So, and that's the case in any case, civil or criminal. Um, so, for example, when he was sued in New York uh, for sexual abuse, uh, E. Jean Carroll could introduce his statements and he could introduce her statements. That's just the way it works in court. So, 
the the reason one reason why defense attorneys don't want their clients talking publicly is that it can never help you because if it's helpful to you, you can't introduce it. But if it hurts you, the government's going to introduce it. So there's nothing but downside. But the 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 issue is so the government could literally, you know, enter and put that videotape a videotape of that or a clip from that interview as an exhibit and play it for the jury at trial. But there's two things to keep in mind with that. First, there's something that's overstated a lot of times. People make too big of a deal about it called the rule of completeness. It doesn't really mean all that much. But in this context, the the gist is you're not the judge is not going to allow it to come in without context. So it's not like Jack Smith could clip like one sentence that he liked and like eliminate all the context around that conversation. The reality of it is that the judge is going to allow that context to come in. That's usually a debate between both sides in a criminal trial of uh, in terms of recording. The second issue is that you have to consider is the interplay between that and him taking the stand. So on the one hand, one nice thing about him making a bunch of foolish statements is that Jack Smith can put those statements up and it kind of, without doing it, highlights for the jury the fact that this guy isn't taking the stand. Um, he, you know, Smith is not allowed to comment on that and the jury's instructed not to consider it. But they're human beings, and of course they're going to think about it. And seeing him on video saying a lot of bizarre things is going to make the jury wonder why he isn't getting up to give his side of the story. Uh, uh, particularly since the only stuff they're going to hear is from the government. The defense is not going to be able to put up uh, clips of its own. However, the downside of that, if you're Jack Smith, is because of this context issue that I mentioned earlier, is it's actually a way of giving Trump an uh, ability to get his story out there without taking the stand. So a totally viable strategy would be like, I'm not playing that interview. If he wants to get any piece of his story out there, take the stand and let me cross you and fall apart. Otherwise, I'm putting on my case and you're screwed. You're never going to get your story in because you can't take the stand because you're so you've got you can't overcome the evidence. You're going to look like a fool. So uh, I think a lot of prosecutors wouldn't even use the Brett Barr interview. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we didn't coordinate this in advance, but you, you, I set it up and you knocked it down perfectly of the points I was thinking is, yeah, in that interview, he says some of his defenses, right? He says almost in the same breath, they were all declassified. Well, as we've, you know, as everyone knows, like there appears to be no basis for this declassification defense, right? And the government, and Trump's attorneys can't in bad faith go put forward at least factual evidence they know to be false about that. But man, getting that interview in is a great way to slip in that Trump said they were declassified. Put a little bit of doubt in the jury's head, right? The same thing with this Presidential Records Act defense. They will have a legal defense. They'll make pretrial about that. But then they may want to put that in the jury's head. If Trump doesn't testify, how are they going to do it? It's not real obvious. But you get this interview in and these other ones in. And yeah, then it starts getting that running in the jury's head. So I agree. I think a lot of these, the Department of Justice just won't use. Right. So what I mean, an actual criminal trial, like actual trial versus how, you know, maybe if you, you some law professors talking about what it could look like in a theoretical land um, is, is 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 there's a kind of a, a rough and tumble to it. And yes, there are rules uh, that are set up like the federal rules of evidence. But the reality is, is the defense is going to find ways of getting their story in however they want to get him in. So let's just say, for example, Trump's team wants to talk about the Presidential Records Act. They can't, they can't introduce it into evidence or talk. They'll, 
they'll ask questions of witnesses about it, even if there's objections, just to get the concept beforehand. Or, you know, they'll do things, just find ways to insert it into the trial, because ultimately, if the jury hears it, the jury hears it. And, you know, then if the judge is properly excluding some of that, uh, then it looks like maybe they got shut down or they didn't get a fair shake or whatever. So, you know, the, the criminal trials are, they kind of exist in a bubble. The jury doesn't understand the full context of everything, only hears and sees, you know, a portion of what's really um, happened in the case. And so there's opportunities for the defense to take advantage of that. Um, and that's just standard practice. In other words, I'm not giving any special tips to, to uh, Trump's team. This is like criminal defense 101. Yeah. And not legally significant, but I'm glad you mentioned the part about Brett Baer. That was my reaction too, which is he's rightfully getting praise. It's hard as a Fox News host to go on and, and hold Trump to account. But yeah, the whole time I was thinking, oh, he could have done so much better. <laughs> you know, he could have, um, when Trump was talking about the Iran document that he showed to other people and tried to say, oh, well, I didn't really show him the document. Like, I, you know, if he could have just quoted the quotes from the recording that exists, where Trump says, I went and dug it up. He he tells the people he's talking to, wait a minute, let's see here. I just found it. Isn't it amazing? Isn't that amazing? Right? Like he he clearly had the document in his hand. He said, This is secret information. Look at this. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> um he he's obviously talking about the document, not a news article. And it would be nice if, if Bear was prepared to do things like that. I understand it's hard in an interview to do that, but that was sort of bugging me the whole time that he could have done better. Yeah, I, I think that, yeah, I think it's fair to say um, that could be hard for journalists to do. Uh, one thing that gives an example to our listeners so they understand, that's one of those cases in cross-examination where no matter what the answer is, you win, right? So if he says, I wasn't telling the truth, I didn't actually have the document there, it's like, okay, so he admits he was deceiving the people that were there. It just suggests that he's less than honest, and you know, so I think there's no good way to answer the question, and so that's why it's a beautiful question for cross-examination, because no matter what way he goes, um, you know, it's going to be bad for him. One other thing that bugs me in this interview that Trump keeps saying is about Biden and how the documents were in Chinatown. That is, A, just so racist, right? Like, so, so racist. But B, it's not even true. <laughs> it's, it's they were, A, if you've been in D.C., what's left of Chinatown, there's basically no more Chinese American like culture there. There's maybe like two Chinese restaurants. Not that we should even entertain that racist notion because it's racist. And B, Biden's office isn't even in that neighborhood. It's actually down on Constitution Avenue, right across from the Capitol. It would have had a great view of the insurrection that Trump led on the Capitol. It's basically in the Capitol complex almost. It's right across from it. So it's just it, the kind of things he can just lie in, particularly racist lies with impunity, is is just amazing. Yes, I've grown numb to it perhaps over time because I've heard them. For I think so we many all years. have, right? Yeah, yeah like I'm just like okay, he's lying again. Yep, what's uh, what's new? Well, let's talk about it. now. Look, one thing that we pointed out a minute ago is maybe this Brett Barr interview. It was good. It's interesting. A good interview and all that, but maybe not all that it was cooked up to be. I mean, you know, my sense was from the clips that I saw that like on cable news, this was like case over, um, you know, and so on. What I imagine as somebody who was in the weeds, you know, handling national security cases that over the past, you know, couple weeks, um, you have seen a lot of takes that I think that maybe 
um, didn't you know comport with your experience? What are some of the bad bad hot takes you've seen over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, well, there there have been quite a few. Um, one, one, which is not related to national security, but you talked about last week is the notion that like the department of justice is going to ask Cannon to recuse you guys sort of yeah. eviscerated that last week. I thought it did a good job. We don't need to talk about that. Um, another one I've seen is an article suggesting that, you know, the department of justice, they're probably, maybe not probably, but trying to make people think they might be preparing a separate indictment in, in New Jersey over the documents that were at Bedminster. Um, I understand why it's, we should think about that, but I just don't think DOJ would bring this big indictment right now and then two weeks later follow up with another one in New Jersey absent some new evidence that really comes in that's that's really sort of groundbreaking and clear. And we have to just keep in mind, you got to really zero in on the facts in these cases. So what do we know what happened in New Jersey? There was the Iran document, right, that happened in Bedminster. A, it doesn't appear that the Justice Department has found that document, even though it looks bad. Good luck charging someone with that if you don't, if you can't actually find the document, unless you have clear evidence that Trump destroyed it. But so th I think that makes it tr uh, difficult. And then B, you'd have to have testimony from the people who were there that not just that they like laid eyes on it from across the room, which may have happened, but they actually like read the words of it. And it's not clear that the Department of Justice has that either. Um, the same with like the image, the map that he showed, I think someone from his super PAC um, there too, doesn't appear that that's a charged document. Who knows if they found it. But even then, I think it, it's even careful with the wording that like he sort of flashed it to him and said, don't look too close or something like that. Like mm -hmm. showing someone a classified map from afar is, is bad, but it's probably not a crime. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, one thing I will say, I mean, look, just as a starting point, everyone needs to understand there's a huge incentive for people, the commentators to come up with creative uh, ideas and angles and they get some attention and retweets and this and that, you know, whether there's anything to it is often a different story. I mean, with this one, I, one thing I will point out as somebody who's handled a wide variety of cases is this is a great example of how we treat people in certain types of cases different than others, because there are it's not it's not often it's not most cases but there are drug cases that are charged and they call them dry cases where it's essentially some people on a wiretap are talking about distributing drugs no one's found the drugs no one has the drugs there's no like the drugs aren't brought into the trial because no one knows what whether they're there but just based on a bunch of words people are saying that there's gonna you know the testimony is there's drugs and they'll convict people of a drug conspiracy there's usually a lot else around that, but I, you know, it's something that I don't even think it would be considered in this context. In part because, unlike drugs, although it, you know, you know, there you could have a dis disagreement about what's there. You know, drugs are what they are. Cocaine is what it is. Whereas a national defense document, um, there's a lot of questions about what's inside of it, right? And there's a, a different mental state required for the defendant, and that's often why. White collar cases can be more difficult to charge generally because they usually require some mental state in the defendant's part. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. All right, what else? What else? Yeah. Uh, another one was there was an article saying, I thought I tried to beat this down back in the fall, but more articles saying, hey, there was a declassification process Trump was required to follow in the White House under the executive order on classification. I've tried to dispel that back since August. But there's really not. It's a public document. Everyone can go read it themselves. There is no part of that executive order that 
has a process that presidents have to follow when declassifying information. It's just not there. That doesn't mean you can declassify something in your head and not tell anybody. That's a ridiculous argument too. But the executive order gives presidents full leeway to declassify information by whatever means they see fit as long as there's evidence of it. So we should stop with that argument too. Yeah, one thing it's sort of like I, an analogy is when we've talked about pardons. Like, could he have pardoned so-and-so? Well, if Trump had, had decided, uh, you know, that he wanted to pardon whomever, okay, you know, he, he wanted to pardon Rudy Giuliani or something, and he wrote that down on a sheet of paper and signed it while he was president and handed it to Mark Meadows or something, that that would almost certainly be effective because there's no nothing magical about a particular font or or typeface that a president uses regarding um, a pardon. But if he now says, like, let's say Rudy Giuliani is indicted with something uh, tomorrow um, and Trump says, oh, no, I pardoned him years ago. The real issue you're making of it is, is there any evidence that this actually happened? In other words, saying that you did it in your mind is just basically the same thing as saying you didn't do it. I mean, if you don't tell anybody about it, write it down and you're basically like, OK, I did it in my mind. Like, what does that even mean? Like, uh, you know, so so I think. You know, it really melds together. That argument is just silly and kind of melds together with like the, the argument that he didn't, he never even did it in any in any event. Yeah, everyone should just focus on the fact that there's just no evidence for that whatsoever. Don't don't worry about that. There was some sort of process required. There, there's really just not now. Except because every time I say this, people say, "Well, what about um, you know nuclear secrets under the Atomic Energy Act?" Yes, I think there's one document or maybe two in the case charged that have that information that Trump could not restricted data or formerly restricted data, Trump could not unilaterally declassify that. So we know that. <laughs> Interesting. I, I don't think our listeners are thinking of that, but it's impressive that you know that off the top uh, of I, every time on Every time on I tweet about this, someone says that, and I, I feel like I have to say that every time. All right. So what, what else? Any other bad takes? Um, another one, someone, again, we're not naming names on anyone, but someone was on TV saying this SEPA Section 7 that we talked about at the beginning that gives people the right to make, that gives the Justice Department the right to take interlocutory appeals of adverse rulings in the pretrial process, someone was saying, this means DOJ can basically appeal anything, including like a bad schedule. If there's a bad scheduling order from Judge Cannon or something else that basically doesn't relate to classified information, that they could appeal that as well. That is not true. The, the statute is pretty clear. It has to be uh, an order requiring the disclosure of classified information. So it's going to be pretty narrow. I've seen DOJ get creative and try to like uh, expand it. There was one case where there was some information that was basically, mm -hmm. I think, Jenks or Brady about a witness that was supposed to be turned over right. like right, you know, the day before the witness testified and it wasn't. The judge excluded the witness. DOJ took interlocutory appeal of under SEPA there. That was a stretch, I thought, because that's not really a classification issue, but those records were classified, and that's actually what took them a while to get them turned over. And so they shoehorned that into, into this argument. That was, that was a stretch, but that's the biggest stretch I've ever seen. There's this sense, I think, in a lot of it, people are very, um, feel a lot of desperation to get this done before the election. I appreciate that. And I think, but I, I will say this is not, Trump getting special treatment uh, in terms of the timeline. If you're unhappy with where the criminal justice system is at and how trials are uh, conducted in this country, I think 
you need to think about reform more broadly, okay? Because this is this is just sort of how people are. But in that in that case, I mean, I really think the SEPA issue, you know, that's going to help the defense more than anything. The fact that you can use that to delay is really going to be more of a tool, I would think, for the defense, unless Cannon does something truly uh, bizarre, which is not unlikely, I suppose. So. Yep. Yep. Renato, I'll tee you up for one that I saw, which was there was a Supreme Court decision that came down about venue. And a lot of people were saying if if the Justice Department had just waited uh, until this decision came down, they would have indicted Trump in D.C. instead of Florida. Do you want to knock that one down? Yeah, I had some journalists ask me about that because they had seen I guess there had been a lot of people tweeting that uh, or something. Yeah. yeah um, so first of all, um, basically what people were saying, it was it was kind of. Not to, like you said, not to name names or be critical uh, of someone in particular, but there are some people suggesting that essentially what the Justice Department could do is indict in D.C. because it's more favorable to them, even though they knew they didn't properly have venue for some counts, and then play this game where they get a, they they get all that in and prejudice the guy uh, by getting those counts in, and then then when they get over when they get the the case overruled on venue, then they would move it and start from scratch in Florida. Um, that's not how the United States Department of Justice is supposed to do things. So our Constitution requires that crimes are charged in the place where they occurred. And some of the crimes here could arguably have occurred in D.C. So there's a D.C. grand jury subpoena obstructing uh, an, a grand jury investigation, for example, arguably could have, could be in the District of Columbia in the, because that's where the grand jury was sitting. But a lot of the, the behavior here occurred in Florida. And we certainly should not have a Justice Department that charges people in the jurisdiction it likes the best, basically to just put pressure on them, knowing that the case is going to get tossed out afterwards. That would be totally improper. And really, it's the sort of thing that no responsible person should be suggesting. Yeah. And then one last very minor one, but just for the listeners, you see people still saying that judges in these cases need security clearances or jurors do. Neither of those is true. Judges are considered to be cleared by the government by virtue of their office. They've been nominated by the president, gone through an extensive background check, confirmed by the Senate. By virtue of their constitutional office, they're considered to be cleared and trustworthy. And then jurors don't go through any special background checks. They'll go through the normal void process, and they will just be basically trusted not to spill any secrets that they might see during the trial that the public doesn't see. Very delicate issue and how the judge would instruct them on that. They might even wait till after the trial to instruct them about that because you don't want to, I could see an argument, you don't want to prejudice them to say, hey, this, you don't want the judge saying, hey, this stuff is really secret in the middle of the trial where the whole question is, is this stuff really secret? So it might come at the end of the trial after the verdict is in, but um, they don't need clearances either. So let's talk about, you know, you're talking about the issue of clearances. One thing I think we should talk about before we move on to a different uh, different subject altogether is how the Justice Department has tools at its disposal that it uses in cases like this, national security cases, and whether or not they're going to employ those tools in this case and how they're going to do so. You know, that's something you we've talked about in the past, but I don't think it ended up making on our actual podcast <laughs> because we've we had to record yeah. so many versions as 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 uh, events were unfolding. So, can you talk a little bit? Let's just uh, give some context as to what those tools might be. Yeah, I think a, a big just sort of academic question I have in this case and strategic question is: 
there is, let's just call it a SEPA playbook that the government has. It's not a real playbook, but over the last 20 some years since 9-11, between all the terrorism prosecutions and then all the, the leaks prosecutions and as other espionage act prosecutions we had in the Obama years and even in the Trump years, the government has established a lot of institutional expertise as to how these cases should be litigated. Um, people at the CIA know that, people at the Justice Department know that, and there are all these tools in place. The question really is, is DOJ going to treat this like a standard case or do they deviate from that because you've got a former president and a sympathetic judge? So with that, and that's at every step, I think that's going to be DOJ's question is, do we go with the playbook or do we scrap it because of this case? All right. I, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate here, Brian, since you can be the uh, representative of the national security establishment here. I think there's an argument to be made that some of the ways in which we, we being the United States government, uh, go out of its, or the United States government goes out of its way to protect national security information in criminal cases, national security cases, prejudices the defendant. And there's an argument to be made that it implicates certain due process uh, protections that the defendant should have or other types of protections that the defendant should have to ensure that they have a fair trial. So can we walk through kind of some of the specifics of what those controversies are? In other words, what the defense will complain about that the government might do in a national security case? Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing will be, well, the first thing is really going to be who gets access to what. Um, and so that'll be set up in a specific protective order about classified information that'll be entered in the next month or two. And in th there, the question is going to be the cleared defense lawyers will always basically get to see anything the government turns over. To the defense that they have security clearances there's always a question of what does the defendant him or herself see and so that'll be one of the first big fights we have which is normally the defendant in a case like this would see information they had access to while in government but they would not get to see information that postdated their time in government that they didn't have access to so how do you define that at least for access in government how do you define that for a president of the united states i don't know we'll see um and then the second question is, will they still go ahead and employ that normal rule and say, hey, if there was a damage assessment that was entered this last year, um, normally the defendant would not see that, only his lawyers would. Are they going to try to keep that stuff from Trump? So that's sort of the phase one fight. Then there's um, what's called SEPA Section 4, which is when information starts to be turned over to the defense and the discovery, there's going to be information in there that the government doesn't want to turn over because it's so sensitive. So they might employ what's called sometimes a substitution where instead of naming a source or an intelligence service or a collection method, they might substitute a more general term like country A or source A for that information. Um, there are um, summaries that could be entered where instead of, let's say there was a classified detailed CIA cable that was discoverable, they would basically excise the one or two sentences that were discoverable, provide them to the defense, but withhold the rest. Now, the thing to know about, and then there's other categories of information that they would withhold altogether, and that's because under um, a case law standard that they're not relevant and helpful to the defense. Normally, in criminal discovery, if it's relevant to the preparation of your defense, the government would turn it over, but there's case law that says if it's classified, it has to be relevant and helpful. And so the Justice Department normally would go to the court and say, hey, there's some stuff here that's relevant, not helpful, highly classified. We want your blessing court to delete that from discovery. The thing to emphasize with all that is all that gets blessed by the court. Um, 
the judge will be briefed on all that. They'll see declarations. They can look at all the discoverable documents if they want. All that gets blessed by the court who has to find that with all those tools being used, it's still, the defendant is still basically in the substantially the same position they would have been in without that tool uh, to defend themselves. And some, aren't there in some cases, this is from my experience, that witnesses aren't even shown to the, like there's a limitation on whether the public or the jury, how much of the witness that they can see in certain cases? Um, I, I don't want to give Trump's attorneys too many ideas, but I think that's one of the things they'll do is say, we want to show these classified records to witnesses too. And there'll they'll be a whole fight about that as well. Yeah. So I guess all, all that I am just going to say about this, because this, you're the expert on this area, not me, is that if I was at the Justice Department and I was thinking about this case, I would think, OK, pretty much the last place where I'm going to want to take any risks employing these tools is in front of Judge Cannon on a case where Donald Trump is the defendant. So maybe we should just scrap a lot of the tools that we would ordinarily use and just eat the loss here that we're going to end up having to have some national security secrets that are going to get exposed during this trial. I, I'm always reluctant to second guess because we we haven't seen the documents themselves. So a lot of it's going to depend on what's in them. But I agree with you that I think the better strategy is to say, we'll still use the handbook when we need to, but there's going to be a lot of times where we have to just throw it out because we have to win this case, right? Not because it's about revenge on Trump or anything like that, but to bring a, any case against a former president you have to be prepared to win it no matter what, even in the face of adverse rulings. So if they're not prepared to do that, this case probably shouldn't have been brought. Um, and, and to me, the indictment suggests by charging 31 documents, not five or 10 or 15, but 31, that they are prepared to employ an aggressive strategy. And my hope is if they get adverse rulings from Judge Cannon, that they have a fallback plan B strategy where Maybe they'll drop some of the counts, but still have 10 or 20 that they can proceed with, even if it means disclosing those secrets in court. All right. Lots for us to see in the uh, days and weeks and months to come. So another big news story today, of course, is Hunter Biden is finally facing federal charges. Um, I, I have to say, I didn't see that coming today. I had been getting uh, uh, inquiries from uh, from news uh, TV stations saying, "Hey, you know, our TV network saying, hey, can you, you know, we're we're going to have breaking news." And I was like, "What? What could this be?" So um, I have to say, and I and I don't mean any um, ill will towards Hunter Biden, who I don't know anything about, uh, but I actually, I actually um, applaud uh, this indictment because I think that. It's a sign that the rule of law um, has uh, some lasting strength in this country. I think it it says something that the current president's son um, is charged, you know, investigated, prosecuted, charged, convicted uh, while his father's in office. I think that says something good about our country. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I think it says a little bit about the divide in our country, too. That's a little unfortunate that I think people who are in favor of Biden um politically, will still welcome this prosecution for the exact same reasons you said, that we all we believe in the rule of law. No one should be above it, even if you're the son of a president. Um, no one should get special favors. So I think it sends a good message uh, as far as that goes, too. And I think, you know, it, it does appear that sort of the, the resolution in this case was similar to what might normally happen if his name wasn't Hunter Biden, 
which is um, what we would want. So why don't we talk about the charges a little bit, Renato? It looks like he, he, he it was it's part of a guilty plea. It's not like he's being charged and going to go to trial. Part of a guilty plea. It looks like there's two misdemeanor um, charges that he pled guilty to and then a felony with a diversion. Can you talk about those charges, particularly that the, the last category there and how that works? Well, let's start with the misdemeanor tax charges. One thing I'll just say, I mean, I actually think, if anything, Hunter Biden seems to me like he got harsh treatment here. <laughs> yeah, I think if his name was John Doe and, and you know, if, if John Doe on the street told me like, hey, they want to charge you with a couple of misdemeanor tax accounts, I'd be like, oh, come on. Like, they're not really going to do that. Um, typically, a misdemeanor tax count is what you settle on if like, the government's multiple count felony case falls apart and they want something to walk away. You're like, okay, we'll take a misdemeanor. But usually the government doesn't waste resources on this sort of thing. So it's usually considered a defense win. Um, you know, misdemeanor is uh, the sort of thing. Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised here if, you know, they, they found this and they felt like they couldn't walk away from it given who he was. So, you know, we don't know enough yet um, to know that, but that would be my initial reaction there. A misdemeanor tax count uh, is the sort of thing you wouldn't get prison time for. The gun charge um, is essentially that he possessed gun, a gun while he was addicted to a controlled substance, which is a crime, a felony. Um, also something almost never charged. Uh, I mean, it's the sort of thing that we would only charge if the status of the person was such that we wanted to charge him. In other words, the leader of the gangster disciples is found with a, a firearm and we don't have, he don't, usually you, you get him with felon in possession, but if he doesn't have a prior, um, you know, you might do something like this or you do, there's another statute alien in possession of the person, you know, is not here legally, but it's, you, you're usually those, 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 uh, counts are only put in when the person's done something else or, you know, there's some other reason so that the, the defendant is somebody you want to get off the streets. So, like I said, it, if anything, this appears to me like they did a big investigation. This is what they found and they felt that they needed to hold him accountable for it. So if anything, harsh treatment. Um, you did mention pretrial diversion. So one thing here, like I said, I don't think he's going to get jail time. On the felony, he's he's getting something called pretrial diversion. What that is, is it's essentially a program where if you follow the law um, and you don't, you know, get yourself in trouble for a period of time, you're uh, you, you you essentially can get that conviction washed away. You're basically agreeing that you did it, and in exchange for not being, you know, indicted and convicted, you're essentially saying I did this, but um, we're going to uh, agree that pretrial services, which is an arm of the court, is going to supervise you uh, for some period of time. Um, and it's a great, it's another generally thing, uh, generally a good result for a defendant. Usually it's when there's not enough evidence to charge much of anything more and the government, it's a waste of the government's time to, to, to proceed forward. So, like I said, I, I think, um, you know, more facts would need to come out on this, but my uh, my initial take is it's probably um, harsh uh, because of who he was. Like they couldn't let him walk from anything in the way that they might let John Doe walk because he's not worth the trouble. Yeah, I, I think the harsh harshness probably came in a way too from how this case was opened, right? Like the Hunter Biden, I don't know exactly all the predicates for it, but the laptop obviously was part of it, right? Like a normal person who maybe leaves their laptop at a computer repair place and doesn't come back for it 
doesn't get all the contents of it spilled out onto the internet, right? And once that yeah. happened, DOJ, I get that it they couldn't really turn a blind eye to it. Once you start investigating, even though in a normal case, again, they might basically let it go, they couldn't really do that here. But I think we've grown too numb to like these these leaks that happened and hacking that happened of Hillary's emails and the DNC emails and this what happened with Biden with his laptop that that it's just accepted as a norm that all right we're just gonna if you're related to a politician or a politician we're gonna hack and and steal and disclose all of your dirty laundry and then you have to deal with all the consequences from that it's not not great for society uh, that this has become the norm for politicians. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely a huge problem. And, and but but what I would say is I think your instinct is right, Brian. Usually the gov- the feds when they put a lot of effort into investigation, they don't want to walk away with nothing. So sometimes they'll they'll spend years investigating something, realize they kind of had it wrong in the beginning, and then they'll still want a misdemeanor on the way out. Yeah. That's sort of what this looks like to me. Um, but it, it it look to me, you know, given the the actual the charges themselves, which are very unusual. Um, my take is they they just felt like they couldn't they they couldn't. They, they couldn't exercise any kind of discretion when it came to the president's son, which I right. think makes some sense. But I think one thing this is start, stands in stark contrast to, I think it's worth noting. We also had an, an article that came out in the Washington Post that was quite interesting about how reluctant the Garland Justice Department and the FBI were to open an investigation into Trump and his inner circle regarding January 6th. As well as in the Mar-a-Lago documents matter, but but the article focused more on that on the, the January sixth case. But nonetheless, I do think that when historians look back years from now and look back at this time, I do think that there's going to be some questions about why and how um, these cases were delayed, and you know, particularly that'll be the case if we end up in the middle of a presidential election with Trump facing criminal trials that end up getting pushed until after the election. Yeah, I mean, one takeaway is kudos to the January 6th committee, right? Like if, if I think the article yeah. makes clear that it was a lot of their work and focusing on this that that helped finally nudge the Justice Department in this direction. You know, remember, there was a time where it wasn't even clear that the January 6th committee was going to happen, right? And Pelosi, to her credit, pushed it through and got it in there. Um, so without that, I, I think it's still probably fair to say there wouldn't have been these investigations. And then the second takeaway for me, again, always thinking more about the documents case is, it shows too what I've always thought in you too that if Trump had kept those documents for a whole year at Mar-a-Lago, knowingly, which is still a potential crime, and then just returned them all to Nara a year later when they asked, they would not have even probably opened an investigation. I think of this because they don't, notwithstanding what all Trump and all his defenders think, Justice Department does not want to get involved in stuff like this. Uh, at least the career people don't, and even. The political appointees like Garland, who are institutionalist, they don't want to get involved in this stuff. They are the Justice Department is fundamentally a small C conservative institution, right? Like they don't like taking a lot of risk um, and getting in the news. They still will do it when it's important for rule of law reasons uh, and holding people to account. But making a big splashy case like the Mar-a-Lago case or the January 6th case, it's not in their DNA for the career folks there. Well, and one thing I would say um, is, you know, and I think it, it's something that will get a lot of scrutiny for years to come is I think Garland's judgment was that the way to cleanse the Justice Department of the politicization 
that it suffered during particularly the Barr administration, but really throughout the entire uh, Trump era. Um, it, it was to essentially have the Justice Department stay away from anything that was political or controversial. Essentially, you know, by example, if it just stayed non-political for a period of time, that was the best thing for everyone. And I think that's a valid debate. In other words, I have I don't I'm critical of his approach, but I don't think it's necessarily wrong. I think there's a, there can be a matter of opinion. One one opinion that I do think is not accurate based on the article, if the reporting from the Washington Post is correct, which we don't we don't 100 percent know. But if it is accurate, I think there's a lot of people out there saying, well, Garland was super careful. And that's why we have these great prosecutions today. And, you know, if he wasn't so cautious, uh, you know, we wouldn't have these the prosecutions, that, the prosecution in Mar-a-Lago that we do. I just don't think that's accurate. Um, I think it's more accurate to say that there was definitely some time wasted there and that the January 6th committee, um, you know, definitely was an inflection point. And another inflection point was the appointment of Jack Smith. When, when that appointment happened, a lot of the commentators that we we're uh, uh, critical of without naming names uh, earlier in this podcast um, were proclaiming that this was going to be another delay tactic by Garland, and it was anything but. I mean, Jack Smith sped the whole thing up, and that was my take as well. Like, I didn't see how that would slow down anything. I thought that was much better to have the uh, special counsel at the helm, uh, who was the experienced prosecutor. So I really think he has taken an aggressive um, approach that that really is the reason that you know you know that there there's a charge in Mar-a-Lago, and there may be charges in January sixth. Yeah, the the other point the article raised to me is, I think part of the Republican strategy in attacking DOJ, even in advance of these Trump charges, is is they know psychologically, maybe not consciously, there is some criminality on their side, particularly with their chosen candidate Donald Trump, right? And they want to make it politically, they want to set the stage so that it's politically untenable for the Justice Department to do what they have to do, which is come after them when he commit a crime. Like you can't ignore this stuff. And they know that they're vulnerable there. And by making, coming out with all these political attacks, going back to Mueller, you know, they want to basically insulate their party from any sort of investigation. And, and they kind of succeeded a little bit, right, at the beginning of the January 6th case with the delay. Yeah, it is. There's definitely an irony that um, Donald Trump has gotten a lot of, uh, I would say, extremely special treatment yep. uh, and nonetheless has turned a, a justice department that's incredibly reluctant to take action against him into one that is he's demonizing as, you know, needing to be cleansed from top to bottom because it is so incredibly biased against him. While at the same time promising that if reelected, he will launch political investigations into Joe Biden and his family. Indeed. So, Chow Bellows, what's going on? Chow Bellows, we should be asking you that question. I'm totally jealous. Where are you right now? I am in Rome in a little, I don't know, little apartamento um, on a balcony terrace area. I don't know that you can see some of the rooftops behind me. Um, I'm drinking a glass of wine as per usual. <laughs> it's, it's almost five o'clock here. Um, <laughs> went shopping today, uh, did a little shop therapy and uh, yeah, just hanging out, eating good food and you know, yeah. 
What's going on over there? I heard there's big news. Well, um, Trump kind of, uh, you know, said some stupid things to Brett Barr on Fox News, which is not going to surprise you. I think that's just every time he goes on television. Um, Eileen Cannon set a very early trial date that won't last. Um, it's just a placeholder, but it's getting people interested. Hunter Biden got indicted. Um, uh, sh you know, shocker or non-shocker there. I don't know. Um, and we're mostly just, um, I don't know, jealous of you. Our podcast is less fun when you're not here, so you got to get back. <laughs> okay, I'm coming back soon. I'll be there next week. Okay. All right. Well, in the meantime, um, have, a have a blast. We I, I have to say, you're making me jealous. We're not going for a summer vacation. I, I took my vacation in December. Uh, usually in Chicago, that's the right strategy, uh, but I'm a little jealous right now. Yeah, you have to. Everybody's in Italy, apparently. What's your uh, what's your gelati to wine glass ratio? Oh, you know, I have not had gelati yet. I'm not a big sweets person. Maybe this is something that we need to unpack. I'm not either, but I would make an exception for gelati. It's especially there. That's crazy, Asha. You're not a sweets person. No wonder. Okay, no wonder you're so fit. <laughs> okay, uh, that definitely makes it a lot easier. Um, so wait, what do you have? You never have dessert at all. But I mean, I drink, I, I, I drink my dessert. What about dessert wine? Would you have like a dessert wine or no? Ugh, it's too no. sweet for you. Disgustamundo. Not even some limoncello? Limoncello is okay. Um, yeah, I guess too sweet. I can't do dessert wine. Too sweet. All wine all the time. Yep. All wine all the time. That's my motto. Um, That's a good strategy. So for me, this is sort of my eat, pray, love, you know, week. Except I'm only eating. I'm not praying or loving. <laughs> <laughs> eat, drink. That's it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> eat, drink. Rinse, repeat. Hold down the fort, and I will see you guys next week. M S W Media. <laughs>